Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Israel's war on Hamas is now in its fourth week. Israeli forces have left a wake of destruction in Gaza, with many thousands now killed and the Strip's 2.3 million residents now living amid a full-blown humanitarian crisis. It comes after Hamas conducted horrific attacks in Israel on October 7, killing more than 1,400 people and taking more than 200 hostages. All of this is seismic for Israel and Palestine, and we've been covering that on FP Live and across our website. But today, I want to take a bit of a step back and explore how Israel's war on Hamas is impacting the broader Middle East. There are several angles here. We may yet see the war expand if new fronts emerge involving Hezbollah in Lebanon or the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Both are backed by Iran. Beyond that, it's worth noting that average people from Amman to Cairo and Tehran have taken to the streets to express their anger at news emerging from Gaza. The public mood is tense. All of that could challenge recent diplomatic advances. With the Abraham Accords, Israel expanded its diplomatic circle in the region to include the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. And until right before the attack, there were ongoing discussions about when Saudi Arabia and Israel would normalize relations. All of that could now be in jeopardy. I'm taping this on November the 2nd. You'll hear a reference to a speech by Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah that may have happened by the time you listen to this. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine and website, and you can sign up on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So, how is Israel's war on Hamas reverberating across the Middle East? I have two terrific guests this week. Stephen Cook is an FP columnist and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's already written for us about Qatar and Saudi Arabia's stake in this war, and I urge you to read his work. And Kim Katas is a longtime diplomatic correspondent and the author of the book Black Wave. She is now based in Beirut, another key player in what's going on. Let's dive in. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having me, Ravi. Thanks for having us. So, Kim, I'm going to start with you. You are in Beirut. What is the mood like there, and what would it take for Hezbollah or Lebanon to get involved in this conflict? Uh, Ravi, it's great to speak to you all and your audience from Beirut. I'm glad to be joining this conversation. Beirut is very tense. Lebanon as a whole is very tense. Uh, because this country has been through many conflicts in the past, including one uh, devastating one, not only its civil war, but of course also wars between Hezbollah and and Israel, uh, including the last one in 2006, which was devastating for Lebanon, 1,200 civilians dead, a lot of damage done to the civilian infrastructure. And there's a sort of hysterical psychosis almost in the country. We feel like we're living in a twilight zone. We're not sure, are we going to have war or not? A lot of people have left the country. A lot of people have left their villages in southern Lebanon. Uh, People have canceled already their Christmas holiday. You know, we have a huge diaspora around the world, and a lot of people come back for Christmas or for, for the summer. And in the midst of that, you actually have an active front, although a contained one, uh, between Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and Israel in the north. 
or Israel's northern front. And it's been ongoing over the last three weeks, almost since you know October the 7th or, or the 8th. Hezbollah's already lost 47 combatants. There've been casualties, civilian casualties on the Lebanese side. The IDF has lost some, uh, some soldiers as well and civilians. And it seems like this is the extent of what the two sides want to stick to at the moment. Um, and my read is that this is because Hezbollah has many reasons to show that it is there supporting Hamas, but many reasons to make sure that this does not become a full-on, full-blown war, including um, because it doesn't suit Iran. I've heard from many uh, officials, Arab officials, Western diplomats, that Iran is looking to de-escalate. It may not look like it because we're watching the Houthis launching missiles. We've had uh, uh, cross-border exchanges in Lebanon. We've had missiles launched from, from Syria. So it certainly doesn't look like Iran is looking to de-escalate, but certainly they're not looking to escalate. They'd like to contain this because first and foremost, on their mind is the survival of the Iranian regime and a full-on regional war is just not something that is going to, to help them. And I'm sure we can go into further details about that. But I, I wanted to point out something. In your introduction, you said that the Arab street is inflamed and there are protests in Egypt, I think you said Jordan and, and Tehran. And I have to say, actually, Ravi, sitting here in Beirut and observing the region, I'm surprised at how few protests there actually have been. We've seen them, they look big, they've happened a few times, they happen almost in a performative way. But particularly in Lebanon, I've been surprised that Hezbollah has not brought out the half a million people that it could bring out, or a million even, if it really wanted to. And in Egypt, it's been fairly contained. And we've seen, you know, some protests in Iran. But I think it tells you something about how tired this region is generally um, about conflict. So, yes, sentiments are inflamed. There is a lot of anger and outrage, a lot of upset at the double standards that is perceived to be, you know, those, the MO of, of the West. But generally, I found that the mood is subdued. Uh, mm. on the street. And what interests me most is to see the mood in Tehran, where the regime itself has a problem with its own domestic politics, and I think would be worried about calling people to the streets to protest in support of Palestine. Mm, that's just a fascinating read, Kim. Thank you for that. Stephen, let me bring you in. Uh, again, taking a big picture view, what is your sense of the chances for a broader regional conflict emerging out of this? Well, you know, picking up on where Kim left off, there are obviously a, a range of constraints on Hezbollah and Iran here. I, I wonder, though, um, and one of the things that I think we should all be concerned about is how long Hezbollah as the resistance, as the resistance par excellence, how long it can sit on the sidelines and continue to claim that as the Israelis push deeper and deeper into the Gaza Strip and as the full horrors of the humanitarian catastrophe there unfold. It may very well be that on November 2nd or November 3rd, when Nasrallah is supposed to give a big speech, that they're not ready yet and that the low level of skirmishing continues. But something may happen that may decide at an ideological level, at a worldview level, again, as the resistance par excellence, that would make it very, very hard for Hezbollah and the Iranians to stay on the sidelines. It's 
it's not a bad strategy from the Iranian perspective, right? They have these groups. Um, they are proxies with varying degrees of autonomy. And there remains, although there's a shifting conversation here in Washington, there remains overall the view that taking on Iran directly is asking for something much more than anybody really wants at this moment. So that if uh, Hezbollah decides to enter the fray in a, in a way that they haven't already, and as Kim pointed out, there has been uh, fighting on that border, um, it, the Iranians may be okay with that um, as long as it one doesn't destroy Hezbollah and that they remain uh, shielded from it. So there have been people in Washington who felt sort of confident in, in ways that it won't spill out into a, a regional conflict. I'm not one of those people. I, I can see a number of ways through one that ideological view or a mistake. That's how Kim referenced the summer of 2006, where the, the Israel-Hezbollah war Hezbollah kidnapped three Israeli soldiers, and it turned into a summer-long conflict. Um, so there are ways in which they can stumble into it. The other front that I'm actually quite concerned about that doesn't get enough attention in much of the reporting and, and some of the commentary is the West Bank. As the conflict has been unfolding in the Gaza Strip, essentially the IDF often, and Israeli police often do this, but they've you know, turn a blind eye to to settler violence, but they really, really have allowed the settlers to go uh, in, in, on, on rampages throughout. Um, and then we know that Hamas has a significant backing. We know that the Palestinian Authority um, has very little sway on what happens. One can imagine some type of rising of Hamas activists in the West Bank and that the Palestinian Authority security forces in no position, nor do they want to take on Hamas and so that you open up run. and those are the those those are the two variables that I think are should be of tremendous concern to everybody the West Bank as well as the north uh, beyond that I think the Arab states are are, are doing what um one would expect them to do at, at this point yeah and we'll we'll get into some more of the uh, granular details on those in a bit um but Kim I I often think it's useful to examine what each party has to gain from where things are headed and therefore try and think about what they want out of the next few weeks. And just spending a bit more time on Iran here, what what are they seeking to get out of where this is headed? And, and if we can piece that together, what should we expect from Tehran? Mm. You know, that is the key question, actually. And I think that's what we should expect also from Hassan Nasrallah's speech. But I think that, and, and you know, I, I might be too focused on the regional dimension sometimes or the, the Saudi-Iran angle because, you know, that's, that's what I write about mostly. So I'm looking at it from this perspective, uh, but I'd also like to tell you a little bit more about a Lebanese perspective and some of the talk of the town here, but also in the rest of the Arab world, is how they see what might come next. And for Hassan Nasrallah, I think the speech on Friday is going to be about proving they still exist in a way. He's been silent for three weeks, right? Which is very unusual, very, very unusual. And you could interpret this in, in you know, whichever way you want. He's not ready to declare war. He doesn't want to declare peace. Um, he's not 
you know, sure what to do. The Iranians want to keep it quiet. You know, there are lots of different um, explanations. Of course, he's been very busy in the background and he's met with leaders of Hamas who've come to Lebanon, uh, uh, the, the Iranian foreign minister. But I think that for Iran and for Hezbollah, um, the key is to preserve Hezbollah as a key line of defense for Iran, should Iran come under threat. And I think they, they will explain away whatever might happen in Gaza for quite a long time. I think I might be wrong. Uh, you know, we're trying to predict the future in what is uncharted territory. Uh, I think they have a high threshold of how much could go wrong in Gaza before they feel they need to get more involved because the utmost uh, a priority for Iran and therefore for Hezbollah, because at this point, I think they're almost equal partners. They're no longer a proxy. Hezbollah is no longer a proxy. Um, Iran's priority is the survival of the regime and the survival of Hezbollah as a key line of defense. I mean, they view Lebanon as a forward defense base for the Iranian regime. And they don't want to be in a situation where they waste that card um, for, I'm sorry to say, for the Palestinians. Um, you know, I wrote a piece two years ago when there was a war between Gaza, between Hamas and Israel, saying no one is coming to help the Palestinians. And in a way, I think that piece still holds today, very sadly. And you've, you're hearing some anger. Uh, from Egyptian uh, journalists who are saying, you know, what what did Hamas expect? And all these tunnels that they built, couldn't they have built shelters for the people if they knew that this is what was going to come out of their um, horrific attack on, on Israel? So, and you're also hearing Hamas members or leaders saying, where's Hezbollah? You know, we're out there in front fighting and we thank them for what they've provided in terms of support so far, but we expected more. So I think this is really showing us some of the divisions now within what is called the axis of resistance. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to see how it unfolds because the longer it takes, the longer everyone's threshold and their, their ability to explain away why they haven't done X or Y becomes harder. And of course, the more likely it is that mistakes happen, there's a misfire, and you're you just cross that red line. Uh, but I think it's also important to point out a few things that have caught my attention. Um, one of them is an interview that the Lebanese prime minister gave to The Economist, in which he suggested that peace was possible, that we had to look for um, ways for a ceasefire, humanitarian aid. I'm, I'm not sure if he mentioned the Israeli hostages, because I think that's essential as part of any sort of short term, uh, a pause or ceasefire. But then he talks about going back to the two state solution and bringing Iran into a peace conference, which sounds you know, ridiculous on two levels. One, no one is thinking about that or nobody can imagine that today amidst the bloodshed. And B, the Lebanese prime minister is frankly very discredited. He's a caretaker prime minister. He oversaw part of the economic collapse here. He's not taken seriously, not, in, not domestically, and I think not internationally. However, I think that that is messaging sent through the Lebanese prime minister by those he has met recently. And who might that be? the Iranian foreign minister, mm. among others. So I think it's important to look for those signals amidst the fog of war. I've heard that from other Lebanese officials who are closely aligned to Hezbollah's thinking. And 
I was surprised that instead of frothing at the mouth about the injustice of Israel's reaction and the injustice of the U.S. Uh, um, inability to call for a ceasefire to, to protect civilians, they were talking to me about a two-state solution. I, I was really taken aback by that. And a third element in there is one of those Lebanese politicians who usually gets laughed off as well because he's a messenger for Iran or a messenger for Syria, always screaming on television about you know the evils of the world, came out yesterday and started talking about there is no, you know, the world post-October 7 is not the world pre-October 7. And I thought, oh my goodness, here we go. And he said, we have to go back to the two-state solution. So I, I hope that in Washington and in Israel, these signals, which, you know, it's hard to interpret precisely at the moment, you know, are they a bluff? Are they a way to deflect pressure? Are they sincere? Is that a trial balloon? Um, you know, what we don't know yet, but I think it's important to pay attention because I think there is something going on there with mm. Iran's thinking and how it's trying to negotiate its place in the region after mm. the war. Mm. Stephen, uh, part of this discussion so far is about the chances of escalation based on what other countries in the region are thinking at this point of time. But it occurs to me, and I have subscribers uh, flooding our chat line with questions along these lines, but what about Israel here? So Israel may also see it in its interest to escalate. Um, and for example, um, if you assume, this is from our subscriber Omri Brinner, if you assume that there could be several years now of armed conflict between Israel and Hamas and Iranian-backed uh, armed militias in the West Bank, tit-for-tat clashes with Hezbollah, is it in Israel's interest then to hit Hezbollah before Iran becomes nuclear? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts there, and I think it's a, I think it's an excellent question. Um, first of all, let me just say, it's my view, Iran is already nuclear capable state, so this is not something that is going to deter the, the Israelis. I think in private, Israeli officials would probably tell you that that's what they believe, but that publicly they couldn't possibly say that. I, I, I think what you're getting from the Israelis is the idea that there needs to be an entirely new security paradigm for Israel. Um, and right now, the immediate issue is the Gaza Strip. They have said un unless they uh, defeat Hamas and make it impossible for Hamas to uh, threaten Israel, it would essentially cut off half of the half of the country that people would not be able to live in, in southern Lebanon. And that is why they are doing what they are doing. And so that uh, southern Israel, I'm sorry. Um, thank you. And that is why they're doing it. And that's why they will prosecute this war, uh, regardless of international pressure, until they until their goals are met. Without a lot of deep thinking about what comes next, I think that they don't really take very seriously some of the ideas that are coming out of Washington right now about an international force or a UN mandate for Gaza, things that are, you know are just the, the the subject. And I agree with this of Washington fantasies. But when they talk about a new security paradigm, it makes me wonder that once Gaza is complete, what is next? Will they continue to want to live in this kind of wild and wary deterrence with Hezbollah? I certainly don't think that they're gonna take very seriously. I, I, it's absolutely the case that Hezbollah and that Iran are sending these signals that Kim is picking up on. I don't get the sense that, it, in, at least in, in Israel, 
number one, and at least half of Washington will take those very seriously. It, it would be seen as trying to take the pressure off of Tehran and Hezbollah. So the Israelis strike me as um, not willing, one, to take advice about this, nor are they willing to see in uh, messages that might or might not be sent from Hezbollah as some sort of opportunity for a two-state solution, especially since they're really is no there is no camp in Israel any longer for it if it was if there was no peace camp on October 6th it was essentially the attacks on October 7th just buried it deeper uh deeper in Israel but but yes I think the question is a good one I think that the Israelis if there is a, a real change here in in Israel it is about how to pursue their security and that establishing deterrence with these groups may not work and that may portend going on the offensive mm. Stephen, as we continue to sort of take a step back on this, um, you've written uh, several pieces in the last four weeks, but a couple of them uh, took in the roles that Qatar and Saudi Arabia are playing. And of those two, Qatar clearly is the more significant one. Uh, this is a country that sees itself as sort of the Switzerland of the Middle East that is able to talk to all sides. Uh, Hamas's leader, of course, lives in Doha. Uh, Qatar has been sending aid money to Gaza for quite a while. But crucially here, Qatar is involved as the key sort of go-between in negotiations to potentially free the 200-plus Israeli hostages that Hamas and some other groups are holding on to, uh, we assume, in Gaza. Talk to us a little bit about Qatar's role in this process and how that plays into the broader thinking about where this is all headed. Yeah, I think, you know, look, it is important to recognize that the Qataris are deeply involved in trying to negotiate the release of these 200 plus hostages. There was a report the other day that the Mossad chief was in Doha to coordinate negotiations um, to get these people released. Um, so they're clearly playing an important and constructive role. And, you know, prior to this, the Israelis would say, we want the Qataris in Gaza because if it's not the Qataris, who is it going to be? And we certainly, it might be the Turks and we don't trust the Turks. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense that the Qataris are both arsonist and firefighter here by the way in, and I wrote about this, by the way in which, you know, Hamas has set up shop in, in Doha and with, with very, very little restrictions. I, I think there is an understanding that this is useful for the United States as well as the Israelis to be able to communicate uh, with Hamas. But after October 7th, I think that there is um, a desire to, at least in Washington, um, to uh, review and understand a little bit better what the Qatari relationship is with, with Hamas. After all, the Qataris were the ones who were supposed to be kind of administering the funds in Gaza for those who are in need. Yet, while they were doing this, Hamas was building out this massive tunnel network and infrastructure that has now been used to devastating effect uh, in this war. So um, it is a problem, I think, that Washington is going to have to confront and that Israel is going to have to confront. The problem is, is that there's really no consensus on it. There are, I should point out today in the Washington Post, if you get the actual paper, Washington Post, there is a full page ad 
um, kind of fulminating against uh, against Qatar. Um, there's all kinds of uh, ideas that are floating around the Washington ecosystem as well as Capitol Hill about uh, sanctioning Qatar, designating Qatar as a state sponsor of terrorism, preventing Qatar Airways from flying to the United States, all these kinds of things over its relationship with Hamas. It is a much, much more complicated one and more difficult for the United States, especially since the Qataris have been important allies, whether it was the withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, whether it's Al-Udaid uh, Air Base, which is the forward operating base for U.S. Central Command for all of its activities in the Middle East, including containing, uh, containing the Iranians, uh, along with another string of bases. But that's the place from where all of this, this happens. So it's it, the United States is in this position where it cannot and does not want to kind of penalize the the Qatar is for their relationship with Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Taliban, and want it and want to use it. But increasingly, there are voices here and elsewhere that this is an untenable situation. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other perks, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash publicsectorfuture to find all the episodes, or just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. Continuing our tour around the Middle East now, Kim, I want to talk about Egypt. And uh, Egypt's president, uh, al-Sisi, you know, like many of his predecessors, he's quite hostile to Hamas, which is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood movement. I'm curious how much leverage Egypt has uh, in mediating anything in the coming weeks. And of course, it also shares a border with Gaza and Israel. What does Cairo want here? I think first and foremost, Cairo wants to make sure there are not two million uh, Palestinians who cross the border into, into Egypt, which is an idea that has been floating around um, and which is quite um, dangerous uh, mm -hmm. in a way. I think for several reasons, those who put this idea forward, including Western diplomats, I think don't realize the extent of the problem uh, they would be creating. Uh, and Fatah Hassis has, has made very clear that this is simply not an option. And one of the reason is that they would be mostly in the Sinai, let's say. And how can you guarantee that you've really quote-unquote, gotten rid of all the Hamas elements, Hamas militants within them. Uh, you know, Abdel Fattah Hassisi doesn't necessarily control a lot of, properly control a lot of these areas in the Sinai. He certainly doesn't want to see 
this becoming a staging ground for attacks against Israel. And my understanding is that beyond flippantly telling the Europeans, you, you think we should take in one million refugees, you take them. Um, he's also, in my understanding, made it very clear to the United States that it would be for him almost a declaration of war. Uh, the Egyptians are really concerned about this prospect. And I think that that also, in a way, is a deep concern for the Jordanians. Um, as tension mounts on the West Bank, and we hear Israeli officials or Israeli settlers making, you know, rather vitriolic statements about what their vision is for the West Bank, there is also deep concern in Jordan that there could be a push to expel Palestinians into Jordan. And you hear uh, people in the region talk about how some of these actions, movements, ideas could, in their words, break up countries in the region. It, it could really, you know, if we want to go down the disaster route, uh, you know, from co military conflagration and escalation to real demographic pressure, political pressure, domestic pressure on countries like Jordan and, and Egypt. This is really a, a tinderbox. And I think that that's why you do hear a lot of voices in the region. And it's not just, you know, the signals being sent by people who are close to the Iranians. Um, there is a lot of talk about the need to return to something resembling peace talks. And everybody's very realistic. This is not for tomorrow. This is not for next month. This is maybe not for another six months. But at some point, um, the Saudis themselves have said, you know, we are still ready for normalization talks. They're very worried about the widespread tension, the potential for years of conflict and, um, you know, skirmishes and, and more violence, you know, because obviously Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, wants to preserve his vision. He has his own self-interest for why he'd like to avoid this becoming a simmering conflict or potentially an active conflict for, for many years. And so it's interesting to hear the Saudis and the Saudi Foreign Minister Khalid bin Salman was in Washington this week saying openly, we are still looking to consider normalization talks between Israel and, and the kingdom. But it will require a much bigger, substantial package when it comes to the actual Palestinians and, and the potential for a political horizon for them. If the Saudis were willing to throw the Palestinians under the bus before and say, you know, here's a few little cosmetic changes on the ground, we'll promise no annexation, we'll give you some money, that's not going to cut it um, anymore after what's happened. Because I think the Saudis, although they've not put an end neither to uh, uh, the rapprochement with, with Iran, nor have they formally suspended normalization talks with the Israelis. It's just de facto not a conversation at the moment. But they've interestingly enough not um, suspended the rapprochement with, with Iran. Quite the contrary. They're, you know, uh, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Because at the beginning of this tragedy that we're watching unfold, it was very noticeable that Ismail Haniyeh from Hamas said that this was also a message to Arab countries. Israel cannot protect you. Uh, and I thought, I wonder what the Saudis are going to do. Which way are they going to go? Are they going to see this as a direct threat that they need to answer by actually hugging the Americans and the Israelis closer? Or are they going to play their cards 
much more in a much more nuanced way. And that's that's what they're doing. They're talking to the Iranians. They've talked to the Iranian president. The Iranian foreign minister was in Saudi Arabia. So I realized that today it's all war, war and tragedy and deaths. And um, people can't, you know, uh, even go beyond or the president of the United States hasn't been able to say we need a ceasefire, probably because the Israelis have made very clear they're not going for that. So there's no need for a public spat. So I understand that that's where we are, but I think it's important to constantly look for a longer term horizon that can that can bring us back from the brink, because it could look really bleak and not just for a year, but for many years. Mm, indeed. Stephen, um, you've written about Saudi Arabia sort of being curiously absent uh, in terms of flexing its muscles in recent weeks on this issue. But let's take a little bit of a step back here as well, because there's the, you know, the normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but also uh, the Abraham Accords between Israel and um, several other countries. What is your sense of the, the status of Israel's relations with countries in the region and do you see the events of the last few weeks as being a setback for that process? How does it play out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Before I answer that question, I just want to underline something that Kim mentioned, and that is the total irresponsibility of Western diplomats and Western thinkers on this to think when, when they talk about it, an international solution or an Arab solution for the Gaza Strip, that sets off all kinds of alarm bells in Cairo um, that that they are aligning with Israel to dump Gaza on the laps of the Egyptians. And that is, and as, as Kim quite rightly pointed out, that would put the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel in jeopardy um, because of all of the things that she pointed out. And this is why, you know, as these ideas have bubbled up, I have made my, my views of it um, very, very clear that these are fantasies cooked up in Washington, 6,000 miles away, which has no reflection of the realities on the ground and the concerns and sensitivities of the of the actors. Now, you asked me about Abraham. So if I may just interject, just, just very briefly, because it's very important to, to stress this as well, um, because of course, you know, as you say, Steve, and I as I've just said, it's it's about, you know, preserving what is there, which is the peace treaty between Egypt and, and Israel and the potential security threat of having, you know, a million or two million Palestinians suddenly in the Sinai. But it's also about the idea of population transfer, which, right. you know, evokes such trauma as well uh, within the Palestinian community and the Palestinian diaspora, which is why I think it's very important to note that the president and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, have said it's it's off the table. And I think that's I just wanted to 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 to. Emphasize yeah, I mean, this that. would be, you know, those, those who are floating this idea of essentially, you know, ethnic cleansing, which is not something that I think uh, we should be talking about in any kind of serious way. Now, um, you you asked about the the Saudis and the Abraham Accords countries. Look, I think the Saudis, as Kim pointed out, are in a terribly difficult uh, position on this. They had moved forward with the Israelis in a number of ways in terms of normalization. And obviously the conflict uh, has made this, the, those conversations difficult to continue. The Saudi defense minister was here. Um, he did say that uh, they remain interested in it. After all, Vision 2030 and everything that the that the Saudis have are dependent upon a stable region and in, 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 in Israel that is integrated in the region. I will say that um, 
it is a good point that uh, Hania made about, you know, can Israel really protect you? I suspect that one of the things that the Israelis are doing as they prosecute this conflict, as well as um, the skirmishes in the north, are obviously to demonstrate the enormous firepower of the IDF once it got its its act together. That, in fact, um, it will rebuild its deterrence and that um, that the integration of Israel into the region is something that is, is worthwhile for these countries, and which is why I think the Saudis remain remain interested. But I think the price now from the perspective of the Saudis is going to be higher than it was. It was never the checked box that Netanyahu made it out to be, but it was going to be something less than what it is now. That the problem there is, I think, Israeli politics. I think uh, Israelis have hardened on the idea of um, a Palestinian state or or anything um, that smacks of anything other than a security regime, given the, the death toll on October 7th. Perhaps over time, this will change. But at least at this time, you know, three weeks, almost a month, actually, into this conflict, the idea that the Israelis are going to be much more flexible and forthcoming with the, you know, the, that the incentive of normalization with Saudi Arabia would be enough. For them to uh, be more flexible and forward-leaning on the Palestinians, I think, is completely out, out the window. I, I think the signals that you're getting from the Israelis is the, the irreducible responsibility of the state of Israel is to protect its citizens, and we're going to do it how we see fit. Obviously, they're worried about relations with the countries in the Abraham Accords. The Emirati statements after October 7th, I think, heartened Israelis because they called the attacks appalling. Uh, the Emiratis have sharpened their rhetoric on this a, a bit, but have also underlined the fact that they see no reason to break diplomatic uh, relations. I think the same can be said of the Bahrainis. It's a bit more difficult with the Moroccans, of course. And that was one of the Abraham Accords where things had gone you know, quite forward quite quickly. Um, but still, there's no indication that any of these Arab countries are interested in uh in in a breach of relations jordan is obviously in the most difficult position along with the egyptians given again you had you have rhetoric and and actually ideas emerging from israel about the sinai you also have the long-term uh israeli right over a long period of time have said jordan is palestine and those people are actually in the government and so um, the Jordanians are obviously quite concerned, and that's why you see the recall of the ambassador and saying, "Don't send an Israeli back to back to Amman over this." I mean, a huge Palestinian population in Jordan, but again, there's no ambassadors in these capitals, but there's no breaching of the relationship, which is, you know, one of the things I wonder about. Maybe Ravi, I will write about about this for you. Is is this a really, you know, paradigm shifting? epic defining regional defining conflict um it, it would be if we get to a, a two-state solution but if we get to some kind of new messy status quo there'll be a lot of deaths for just a step in in the opposite direction uh, of that I, I i could be wrong but it, it, this this conversation about what the abraham accords countries are doing with the south what kbs mbs's brother said in washington you know leads me to that this may not be as big a change as as we see, other than the security regime under which Palestinians are forced to live in the Gaza Strip and potentially the West Bank. Well, Stephen, I would like to read that piece. Uh, not that we commission essays uh, live on TV, but uh, but we'll be in touch <laughs> well, we'll about that. About we'll talk about that, Kim. Uh, as we continue to sort of zoom out on this, um, you were a long time diplomatic correspondent in D.C. You followed the State Department's moves for many years. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going back to the region uh, this week. 
he was there uh, right at the start, of course, uh, and President Biden was there as well. It strikes me that America has shifted its tone um, over the last 24 days. It began by making very clear that it stands with Israel. And in recent days, uh, there has been a clear shift um, where it is asking for a pause. Um, it is privately, uh, diplomats are speaking to the Israelis and asking them about you know where this is headed, what is the day after plan. They're urging them to not repeat the mistakes America made after 9-11. What is your sense of what America has to gain and lose uh, in the coming weeks as civilian casualties in Gaza continue to rise? There's a lot riding, I think, for President Biden um, on this. Is he going to go into an election year with a simmering conflict um, in the Middle East, you know, violence uh, on the West Bank, an unfinished um, war in, in Gaza, uh, refugees being pushed into uh, Egypt or Jordan, um, more violence on the border between Lebanon and, and Israel? Is he going to go into an election year with, you know, a return to some kind of status quo as uh, as Stephen was describing? But you know, where we're all you know in a worse situation than before because you know we're counting our our dead on both sides. Um, or is he going into uh, and 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 the consequences or the Im the impact of. Um, of, uh, of those first two scenarios is how that plays out with, with the American public, of course, uh, in the US, all, all of this. And I understand that, you know, foreign policy isn't the priority for people when they go to the to the polls in the US necessarily, but this seems to be playing out in, in a big way for many people um, in the US, uh, the Jewish community, the Arab American community. Um, and then you have the third scenario, which, you know, I, I don't want to sound, you know, uh, naive, but but maybe it's almost wishful thinking because I don't want to even personally. Uh, and I'm sitting for now in the safety of, Be of Beirut. We cannot go through another war. You know, we are all traumatized in this region by the various conflicts that we've lived through. We all have layers of trauma. So I try to stay very realistic and as detached as possible in my analysis, but always throughout my work, my writing, I've always tried to look for the glimmers of hope, the potential ways in which things could align if, you know, this comes together with this, that we could see a horizon. You know, otherwise you, you give up. I lived through 15 years of civil war. And if you give up on hope, then, you know, you might just as well um, leave the region or, you know, anyway. But for the United States, I think um, there's there's a lot riding, uh, there's a lot to lose, there's a lot to, to win. And I think that despite a lot of the criticism that the administration is getting from uh, the Arab American community and certainly from people in the region who are just beyond outraged that there wasn't an immediate call for cease for a ceasefire. Um, I think the Biden administration is navigating this as well as you could, because I think we were very close to a potential preemptive Israeli strike against Hezbollah in Lebanon. I think we got very close to that within the few days after October 7th. I think a full-on ground invasion with carpet bombing of Gaza was also 
uh, on the cards. I'm not saying that what is happening now is better or, or less deadly for civilians, but it could have been, imagine that, it could have been even worse. So I think that the initial reaction, because of the horror of October 7th, was understandable. And there is a reflexive uh, statement that always comes out of Washington, we stand by Israel, full stop. And I've learned that this is how it works. I mean, we lived in 2006 through 34 days of war, and it took a long time before Washington pronounced the words uh, ceasefire. I think it almost took 34 days. And we even had Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice at the time saying these were the birth pangs of democracy in the Middle East. So, you know, um, I think we're doing a lot better with, with this administration. And I know it's hard for people who are suffering to, uh, to see that. Um, so how can they move forward from, from here? What can they convince the Israelis to do or not do? I think really that is going to be the most difficult aspect of the situation, because as Steve has been pointing out, the Israelis are, are not in a mood to, to listen. They're going to do it their way. They're going to assert the turn back their way. And I think that is going to be the most difficult part of this equation. Mm. And it's an equation we're going to follow very closely at Foreign Policy. Uh, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Kim Gattas in Beirut, thank you for joining us. And Stephen Cook, as always, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us. And that was Kim Gattas and FP's columnist, Stephen Cook. There's lots more coming up in the weeks ahead. You can stay abreast of what we're doing on foreignpolicy.com. You can also watch these conversations live. If you're a subscriber, use the code FPLIVE for a discount on our website. FP Live, the podcast, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. And the executive producer of FP Live is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.